In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Christ is in our midst. Thank you. It's so encouraging to me when you say that. It encourages my faith. And it helps me to know that I'm not the only one struggling to believe either, because it is hard. Today, today in that it's the eve of the Feast of Theophany, we're about to perf- and we're about to perform the great blessing of the waters, and that's why we have all this little setup right here in the middle. I want to share some beautiful words about the Feast of Theophany with you. As I'm drawing attention to the fact that we have water and bottles and a cross set up, I'll let you know, as, as we're getting closer to that time at the end of the liturgy, we're going to perform the blessing of the waters. If you want to come, if you want to draw near and be close to me while I'm having that um, service, especially the little ones who can't see around, they can get really close and watch, watch me plunge the cross into the water, you know, and be right there. So don't fear. I'd love for you guys to be close. The meaning of the Feast of Theophany is summed up in its title. You may have heard it referred to as, and when we're talking about it, we're talking about the Feast of the Baptism of our Lord. For those of you who maybe, there there may be some who've never heard that term Theophany before. Um, the meaning is summed up in its title. In the West, often it's known as epiphany. Have you heard of that term, epiphany? It's also known as theophany. And both are okay to use. They can be used interchangeably. So if, if you hear someone say epiphany, so you don't get to say, no, no, it's fine. That's not what we call it. Okay? It works, too. The term epiphany generally means appearance. In appearance or a manifestation, we find the word epiphany used in the passage from the letter to Titus. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And what happened at Christ's baptism? He was revealed and proclaimed to be Son of God. And the Trinity, the Holy Trinity was revealed. As we say in the Troparion for the Feast, when thou, o Lord, was baptized in the Jordan, worship of the Trinity was made, made manifest. God was revealed. The revelation of God is Trinity, and we proclaim this as essential to the Feast. So it is an epiphany. It is an appearance. It is the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared in the person of Christ. The term theophany is also a good one. Theophany calls to mind the passage from 1 Timothy 3.16. God, he says, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God was manifested. So if epiphany means 
a manifestation or an appearance. Theophany comes from the word theos. A theophany is an appearance of God. God was manifested in the flesh. And so using that term theophany is a proclamation of the fact that God was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And among the hallmarks of this feast is the revelation of God as Trinity. Either title is appropriate. Although I do like theophany because it's a little more specific. A little more specific. And that's why I tend to use it. But both are okay. The theme of the manifestation of God is prevalent in this feast. This feast is also known as the Feast of Lights by way of the frequent use of symbolism of light. If you pay close attention in the hymns, you'll notice this theme even in the subtleties of the language of the feast. In the Troparian, we hear, Thou hast appeared and enlightened the world. Thou hast appeared and enlightened the world. Glory to Thee. Because this is the day of celebrating the appearance of Christ, who Himself is the light of the world. And I like to remind people, anytime you see a light, it's a type of Christ. It's an image of Christ. It reminds us of the true light that is Christ. Christ is the light of the world who's appeared and not just said, I'm, I am the light. Ha! But appeared and enlightened the world to bring His warmth and brightness and understanding to the world. So it's a feast of the illumination of the world. The candle, the light that illumines all, appears today. And everything else of seeming importance becomes a bit dim in comparison. Fix your eyes on this light. Fix your eyes on this light and don't divert them. For this is the light produced by a flame that ignites but does not consume, but rather refines and sanctifies. It's one thing to say that Christ is light, another thing to allow the flame of that light to ignite you and to purify you. Along with these themes of manifestation and illumination is a third one, renewal. Renewal and regeneration and recreation. The baptism of Christ is a renewal of human nature. It's serving as a prelude to the primary and initial means of our entry into the life of Christ. Our own baptism. I'll give you a challenge. Look up in your Bible concordance the word baptism. Baptism, baptized, baptized. And look at those passages. There's a website I like to use called Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. Go on there. You can do word searches. Type in the word baptize. You'll see how incredibly profound the meaning of baptism is for the Christian faith. So today in celebrating the baptism of Christ, we acknowledge such a renewal. But not only one that's limited to the renewal of humanity, but... As we mentioned on Friday after the royal hours, it's a cosmic feast. It's a cosmic feast. It's a feast of proclaiming 
the effect of the incarnation of God on the material world as well. Christ came not only to renew mankind, but to reclaim all of creation. Let's consider this question addressed repeatedly in the hymns of the feast. Why was Christ baptized? Why? Why? He wasn't impure. He didn't need rebirth and regeneration. Why was he baptized? It makes sense that as a man, that any man would be baptized or sinful in need of repentance, seeking cleansing from sins. But what about the sinless one? What do the waters have to offer him who, who is their very source? Let alone the clay, John. And we hear a lot about this interplay of John. Who am I to place my hands on the one who created my hands? Those kinds of things. He placed his hand upon the potter in order to plunge the source of all life into the waters of the Jordan. Of course, as is most often the case, the explanation is found in the beautiful hymns of the feast. This is a little bit of an encouragement to to be here, especially tonight. We're going to hear many beautiful hymns. You hear most many of the most of the variable hymns of the feast in the vespers and in the orthros for the services. Okay, so please keep that in mind. If you want to know what this is all about, and if you want to go deeper, then you want to be here for the vespers, and you want to try to get here for orthros if you can. I know it's hard with kiddos to get here in the morning especially, but try to get here for the Vespers. The hymns reveal what it is that we're celebrating and why. They state, Though is God, He needs no cleansing, yet for the sake of fallen man He is cleansed in the Jordan. And as man He is cleansed that I may be made clean. We begin to see that Christ plunged into the waters in His humanity summing up all of humanity in himself as the second Adam, accomplishing for humanity what it had failed to accomplish for itself and providing the means by which to do it. When he was crucified, Christ, who knew no sin, to use the words of St. Paul, Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took upon himself the sin of all of humanity so that it might be put to death on the cross. And likewise, at his baptism, he who knew no sin, just like he who did, not need, who did not deserve to be crucified and punished. The perfect one, the new Adam, he carried the sins of humanity down with him into the waters. And he cleansed humanity. And arising from the waters, he raised us up to re- as regenerated, renewed, and restored. In Christ's baptism... At the hands of John, our own baptismal regeneration is already accomplished by anticipation. The many celebrations of the Eucharist are all a participation when we celebrate the liturgy. They're all a participation in the single and unique Last Supper. And in a similar way, all of our individual baptisms are a sharing in the baptism of Christ. The baptism of each person is a means by which the grace of Jordan is extended so that it may be appropriated by each of us personally.
You've heard me use nuanced speech in this way, always regarding that in Christ the salvation of humanity has been accomplished while it's yet being accomplished in each of us. We who represent the humanity that has been saved are yet being saved, and we live according to the baptismal reality of our life in Christ. And we continue to until the end. He who endures to the end will be saved, we hear. And we could like, like, likewise say, he who preserves and renews his baptism to the end will be saved. We could say in one sense, the whole of the Christian life is an appropriation of our baptism, a preservation and a constant renewal of our baptismal identity. You may have noticed the very close connection between the prayers of the great. Uh, you may notice the connection when you hear these prayers today. You'll, you'll hear the connection of the sanctification of the waters with the sanctification of the water of baptism. In this, we'll see, we see an indication of the close connection between Christ's baptism and ours. When I take the cross with Christ on it and I plunge it into the waters to sanctify the water, it's an image of His Baptism in the Jordan. That's why we also call holy water Jordan water. Okay. I have to emphasize here though that participation in baptism is by no means an indication of one's right to salvation. We have no right to to be saved. No more than physical circumcision would automatically make someone a child of Abraham. I call to mind the words of Deuteronomy. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. This is a challenging word during this era in which the outward sign was the most drastic indication of one's membership in the covenanted people of God. We also recall the challenging words of the Holy Apostle Paul. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And again, the Holy Apostle Paul in the epistle reading um, we just heard a few days ago. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Baptism is the new circumcision. In each of these passages, we see that circumcision is a mode of being, a disposition, much more than an outward sign And in the last passage, we see that the sign of circumcision has been replaced with the baptism of Christ, identification with him in his death and his resurrection. But to be baptized isn't enough. While we trust that the waters of regeneration have great power, the water of cleansing, the power of them, only continues inasmuch as we continue in that reality that we've entered into as those who've put on Christ. Who've never, who, who never seek to divest themselves of this garment. 
You guys continue to bear witness to this with your white robes on right now. Someone came to me once for confession and said, Father, I want, I, re- I want the circumcision of the heart. I need it. It was so inspiring to me. I could have said, I want the baptism of tears. I want to understand what it means to have put on Christ and to not corrupt that white garment that He's allowed me to, to be encompassed in of His beauty, of His love. I want to share some words from the late priest Dimitru Staniloy, which I often share with our newly illumined. It goes like this. The mystery of baptism isn't only a momentary realization of a mystical death and resurrection by the one who's baptized. It's also... And this is essential to the Orthodox understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Baptism isn't just that one-time transaction, but it's also an inauguration of a process in which this death and resurrection continue until perfection. Our experience of death and resurrection in Christ continue to happen in our lives over and over again until it's brought to perfection. This death is again the negative aspect of asceticism or spiritual struggle. It's the struggle against the old man of sin. The resurrection is the positive aspect. It's the raising of the new man, of the virtues. Death is joining with suffering. Death is joined with suffering. We stifle and cut away from us a kind of life which has become our own. But then we realize that the Lord too died suffering. And by our suffering, we too take part in what he suffered. In this sense, asceticism, our spiritual struggle, is our participation in the death and resurrection of the Lord. In the continuation and actualization of baptism by our personal efforts, Christ as the source of the power which sustains the effort of asceticism is the force, the nature, both of the virtues, as of the positive side of asceticism, asceticism, as well as of the struggle against the old man of sin. And remember, that struggle continues. Christ directs the work of the slaying of the old man. He continues and directs the work of the slaying of the old man of sin within us, not only by the power which he gives us from the inside out to fight willingly against sinful habits, but also by troubles and afflictions of every kind, which He permits to come to us. If we accept these troubles, they gradually purify us. If we accept the troubles that He allows us to endure, then they gradually purify us. If we revolt, they sink us deeper in sin. Christ is the one who gives us the power to endure them, to suffer afflictions in this sense. He participates with us in our sufferings. And in this sense, too, He is humbled with us, burying Himself in a self-emptying, in a death which He repeats in each of our lives. 
It's the death which at the same time is an exaltation. The paradox of Christianity. Almost done. But we're never done. If you don't like being edified, then, oh man, you don't want to go to heaven then. I mean, not that I'm the source of all edification, but, you know, I mean, we need to, whew. We should never tire of bearing witness to the love of God. Like we're inspired when serving as witnesses to baptisms of those who are newly illumined. And I was nearly lifted to heaven when I was celebrating our baptisms a couple weeks ago. The earth was shaking. The demons were trembling. They knew that they could not follow the newly enlisted soldiers of Christ into the reclaimed waters in which death is transformed into life. We are all the more emboldened by seeing Christ, the God-man, to subject himself to the waters as a slave. This one who would command the waters eventually and walk upon them, submitted himself to the waters. What a great paradox. What a great humility. On Friday, I just mentioned the crazy reality of the fact that the Creator could even be encompassed by water. Let that, as the kids say, mind blown, if you think about it. The Creator, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you get it? Okay, you're still awake. And speaking of reclaiming the waters, I want to conclude on this point. Not only do we hear about the effect of baptism in the hymns of the feast, but we hear about the effect of Christ on the water itself. We're told that Christ has appeared to sanctify the waters. And this is is important. And this is a huge paradigm shift for a lot of us. Because at most we want to see that Christ especially with my upbringing, that he led us by example. Oh, so he was baptized, therefore we should be baptized as well. But something else happened as well. Something extremely significant. Christ has appeared to sanctify the waters. We know of the tragedy of the fall of humanity. And we know also that the invitation of death and corruption by man has plagued all of creation with the the fate of corruptibility. And in this feast, which we'll be celebrating, we find the uncircumscribable one who was once contained in a womb, now circumscribed, encompassed in the waters of the Jordan, and by entering into the water, transfiguring the water into a means of healing and of grace. Water restored to its original state. You may remember Father Michael Johnson here once around Theophany, and he said, the water, the holy water, is just the water of Eden. So we could say that if water acts as a means of grace, preeminently in the sacrament of baptism, it's also used as a means of, means of sanctification on other occasions as well. And this is why we're encouraged to drink from that water that has been sanctified at Theophany. We drink it, we sh- you should drink, if you don't, Partake of it often. We should sprinkle ourselves, our families, our homes with it. When I'm stressed out, I'll take a little bit of holy water and just rub it into my hands. Just put it all over my face and 
You may see in some of the, uh, the old countries where people are in the monasteries, where people are getting sprinkled with holy water, they're just like soaking it in and rubbing it into their hands and their faces and their heads. We sprinkle ourselves, our families, our homes with it. In times of distress, we know what to do. We don't just go inside our head, but we also sanctify the space that we inhabit. Claim it for God. The darkness is always encroaching upon it. So we're constantly pushing back in return and sanctifying and reclaiming. When we do this, we're proclaiming the cosmic implication of the incarnation. We're using the primal element of water, this fluid substance that all things depend on. We're invoking the Holy Spirit to accomplish what was accomplished in the waters of Jordan. And that happens even here and even now. We're inviting God to accomplish this in our homes. Do you want your home to be a holy place? A place where the presence of God is experienced and known and proclaimed? I mean, I do. And so we bless, our, we baptize our homes even. When we reclaim the waters and invoke the grace of the Holy Spirit upon the waters, God employs them as a means of healing and a means of exorcism and a means of increasing our faith. The redemptive and transforming grace of the Savior extends to all things. Our essential proclamation here can be found in the words of the psalmist, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So for this reason, we can say that matter matters. If there's one line you take away from this feast, if you can't remember ten things, maybe one that matter matters. The beginning of, with, excuse me, beginning with our very flesh and bones, our person, all the way to the door we walk through at the end of the day. All things all things may become again a mode and means of God's holiness and of conveying His purity and His love. So today, beloved in Christ, as we prepare to celebrate this feast, we remember that the all-perfect Savior entered into the waters of the Jordan that we might too be saved. Today, We prepare to celebrate the fact that the one who formed all things from nothingness allowed the flow of the Jordan to surround him to demonstrate that he is the God of and in, but not only over, creation. Today, beloved in Christ, we're being invited to celebrate with joy the renewal of the human race and to resolve again and again to live a life worthy of the baptism with which we've been baptized a life of true repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's not shy away from it any longer. Let's continually die with him that we may live with him. Amen.